you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to the next section of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5, as we're reading verses 38 through 48. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. As many of you are aware, Jesus is speaking to a large group of people who have assembled. And chapters 5 through 7 are popularly known today as the Sermon on the Mount. And they contain some of the most challenging passages in all of Matthew's gospel. And I think we're about to find that today. And so as Jesus is speaking, we break into chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. If you are here for the first time this morning or watching on our live stream for the first time, a very warm and special welcome to you. And this morning we will be looking at one or two issues that are, to say the least, controversial and a little sensitive. We don't do that every Sunday, but this is one of those Sundays. Because here at First Presbyterian, we are convinced of this, that as we open up God's Word on a Sunday morning, we do it in order to get to know Him better. And as we mature and grow in our faith and in our understanding of his love and grace for us, we take the lessons we learn on Sunday morning and we seek to live them out in an authentic, credible manner by applying them to our lives each day. And the application this morning may hit home a little more than you're comfortable with, so please be patient with me. Those of you who are here for the first time this morning, thank you for sticking to our CDC guidelines for COVID-19. I'm conscious that many of you are wearing masks, even though it gets frustrating, so thank you for that. I have been using the hand sanitizer. And as I came along the corridor this morning, the stuff I have in the church office is pretty strong. I'm fairly convinced it's pure alcohol. And as I came along the corridor, I could see people saying, Good morning, Pastor. Sunday morning, late night, was it? And I'm saying, no, it's the hand sanitizer. They're saying, okay, we believe you. So thank you for your patience with all of that. 
The passage we're coming to is so compelling, so challenging, and yet so energizing that my trust in prayer this morning is this, that you will leave prayerfully saying, Father, let me be the person you are calling me to be. Let me be part of a church who genuinely cares and is committed to making a difference. Over the last six months, we have, of course, been talking about how we respond to the challenges of COVID-19. We have been looking from time to time at our context where there is significant health issues, education for our children and our grandchildren, concern over the economy. And of course, across our nation, there has been multiple concerns about racial injustice and all sorts of additional issues. And as Christian folks... It is always a good idea to remind ourselves of several principles in the Christian life. What are the things that define us as a church? Who are we? What are the things we hold to be self-evident? In other words, what are our core values? How do we live them out? We've been asking these questions over the last two and a half to well, actually, maybe three or four years now, as we have sought to say, what does it mean to be a church in a downtown 21st century setting? What are we known for in the community? What are those core values? And on Sunday mornings, this is what we're hoping to be. We're hoping to be a place of learning. A group who will spend time in the scriptures learning going deeper in our faith, maturing as we live out our faith, but learning in the process. Secondly, we seek to be a place where we wrestle with difficult questions, and that will certainly be the case this morning. Thirdly, we want to be a place which is life-giving and life-affirming. In other words, as you leave this morning, you should leave your head up high, thanking God for his goodness and his love and his grace, his equipping and enabling and strengthening as you go into a new week and seek to live out your life. That's why we talk of life-giving, life-affirming in our focus and purpose in our direction as we live out our faith. But above all other things, We ought to be a place where first and foremost we engage with a living God. And these are the things that define us. These are some of our core values. And I trust you'll feel and sense that as we get deeper into this incredible passage of Scripture this morning. Others of you will say to me from time to time, Richard, I always appreciate what you're saying Sunday morning, but sometimes you lose me. Sometimes I wish I could stand up in my pew and say, Richard, please give me one thing to do this week. One thing that is practical. One thing where I want to make a difference. One thing to aim for. You just give me too much. Give me one thing. Well, that's coming. And for the last 10 minutes of our message this morning, you're going to need a seatbelt. Because we're going to cover ground that may be a little uncomfortable. You're going to have to hold on because what you're about to hear will be challenging. And it will make you feel less than 
warm and cozy and you may leave being significantly challenged. The first time this sermon was delivered to the couple of thousand folks who were there, Jesus had been talking, as we saw last Sunday morning, about restraining our nature so that we don't become angry. Restraining our nature and our desires when it comes to marital faithfulness. And we looked at it all last Sunday. And this morning he's continuing these themes. And in fact, last Sunday he talked about don't take someone else to court. In fact, that was his illustration. He said, sort it out before you get there. Because if you get there, the judge will sort it out and you may not like the outcome. Take a lower position, a humble position and go and talk it through with the other person. And continuing that theme, verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now that passage, as you can imagine, has been interpreted, debated over, applied in a multiplicity of ways over the last 2,000 years. And it's helpful this morning to understand what it is saying and what it's not saying. When Jesus says, don't resist an evil person, is he saying that we got it wrong when we stood up to Nazism in the Second World War? No, that's not what he's saying. Is he saying that someone who commits murder should just be allowed to run free? It's no big deal. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is this. He's using terminology here, which continues the theme from what we looked at last Sunday, the theme of taking someone to court. And in fact, the language he uses right there at verse 39 is legal language. When he says, do not resist an evil person. What he's saying here is this. The context, in fact, could rightly be interpreted, do not bear witness against someone in court. And what he's saying is this, if someone offends you and offends you so badly, you immediately say, yeah, right, you think so? We'll see about that. I'm speaking to a lawyer. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't go to court in order to prove a point. What he's saying is, as Christian folks, take a humbler approach, a position of humility, gentle in your response. And his point here is this, that if someone hurts you, grieves you, Get alongside that person. Have that conversation, difficult and hard and painful as it may be, and then move forward. And that's the point he's making. And in fact, he illustrates it when he says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In the first century, when Jesus was speaking, 
The illustration he is using means that when someone slaps you across the face with the back of their hand, it was considered an insult rather than a violent attack. And he's saying if someone insults you, if they are dismissive of you, if they are marginalizing or minimizing you and what you stand for, don't attack back. Take the humbler position. Let me say it again. Don't stand on your rights in the hope that a relationship will move forward. That's the point he's making. Someone sent me a lovely image on Facebook this past week. And the image was of a man, and I guess he'd be in his mid-sixties. He looked like a grandfather. And the picture shows you the man standing with one hand on bicycle handlebars, the other hand on the bicycle seat. And over the other side of the bike is a young boy in his neighborhood who looked about from what I could see, maybe 10 or 11, young African-American kid. His friends are beside him. Some of them have got bikes, a couple's on a skateboard. And here was this man standing there looking at the young man. And the young man has pulled his T-shirt up over his nose. It had nothing to do with COVID-19. And he is, in fact, drying his eyes. And the story explained what was taking place. The young boy cycling in his neighborhood, having great fun with his friends, had a hand-me-down bicycle that clearly was many years old, probably a decade old, at least from what I could see in the picture, and it needed a little maintenance, to say the least. They were cycling around their neighborhood. He lost control of his bicycle. He put on the brakes. The brakes didn't work, and the bicycle slammed into the man's car door, and there was a significant dent in the door. Now, the man, his neighbor, could rightly have gone to his father and said, look at this, what are you thinking? How irresponsible is this? Get this young boy's bicycle fixed, and incidentally, you're going to receive an invoice for the repair on my car. But the man did the opposite. Claimed from his own insurance. He then went into his garage. He had back there... A bicycle, still in pretty good order, it didn't look that old, from his own grandson. He tidied up the brakes, pumped up the tires, washed the bike down, presented it to the young man, and that was the photograph you saw. And the young man was tearful because someone had cared enough to give him a bicycle. Isn't that a cracking story about taking a lower position, not demanding your rights, but going the extra mile. That's what's being explained here. That's what's being laid out for us. Take that position of humility. Turn the other cheek. Now, Having said all of that, Jesus then takes it to the next level when he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And you may be here this morning saying, Richard, I find that hard. If you knew what I had gone through in the last 18 months, 
when my spouse divorced me, you wouldn't be asking me to turn the other cheek. You wouldn't be asking me to take a humble position. Have you any idea what she did to me? Have you any idea how deep those wounds are? Those wounds are so fresh, I can still see the stitches. The emotional pain has been off the charts. Richard, are you serious? Love those who have hated you. Pray for those who have persecuted. Are you kidding me? Really? Is that all you've got this morning? Is that it? Is that what you're going to tell me? Or it may be you're watching on live stream this morning. You were abused as a child. Not just physically, but in other ways as well. And what a parent or a relative or someone in authority did to you was absolutely awful. Should never have happened. You find it so difficult to move beyond the trauma, the psychological, emotional woundedness. You've been unable to move past it. And now here is a pastor saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Well, please be patient with me as I begin to take this to the next level. Back in 2015 in Charleston, and we talked about it at the time, a young man went into a Wednesday evening Bible study, shot nine people, seven were in fact lost their life. Three days later, when the young man came to court, Seven family members stood up and talked about the reality of forgiveness. And one family member after another, after another, after another said almost the same thing. And the last person to speak was Myra Thompson's relative. And this is what she said. I would just like him to know that, to, that I want to, it should, she should have said, to say the same thing that was just said. I forgive him, and my family forgives him. But we would like him to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change him and change your ways, so no matter what happens to you, you'll be okay. Can you imagine the maturity and the strength it took to say those words for each family? Can you imagine what Christ was doing in those families' lives, the healing and the comfort that sustained them in those early days and has sustained them since? Talk about living out your faith in an authentic, credible manner. Talk about being the real thing. Extending forgiveness amidst senseless, vicious, violent act that took people's lives. Maybe you're here this morning, you were engaged to be married, and it's now broken off, and all of your hopes and dreams have gone nowhere, and you're wounded. 
Maybe a teacher in school said something to you when you were in your teen years. You've never got over it. It may be a friendship that was deep and lasting has fractured, turned sour. How are you to move forward? Now let me be clear on this. If a criminal act has taken place, it's probably a good idea to speak to a police officer. If you are needing professional help to deal with your past, several pastors will be right here after the service and you need to talk to someone, we'll be glad to do that. But as I move forward with that theme of forgiveness, let me tell you what forgiveness is not and then we'll talk about what forgiveness is. Forgiveness does not mean that you pretend what took place didn't happen. That's not forgiveness. That's living in denial. Forgiveness is not justifying what happened. Forgiveness is not excusing what happened. But there is such a thing as unilateral forgiveness. Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts, while he was being stoned to death, looked heavenwards and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's unilateral forgiveness. Do those words sound familiar? And of course, he was living out his faith as Jesus did when he went to Calvary for us. Calvary is unilateral forgiveness for us. And unilateral forgiveness takes place when a child grows up and the person who perpetrated an event against them is no longer living. person has moved to another state. You'll never see them or have contact with them before. But when you offer forgiveness, whether they're aware of it or not, this is what you are saying. You are saying, I forgive you and I forgive you for doing this to me. And when you extend unilateral forgiveness, what you are doing is releasing that person, you are firmly putting behind what was perpetrated against you and you are then moving on with your life. Sometimes when we're wounded so badly, we become bitter and our life is defined by the event or the action that took place. And that's the only place we focus We find it so hard to move on because that act is now defining who you are and you cannot move forward. And when you refuse to move forward, it's a little like drinking poison, hoping someone else will die. That's how serious it becomes. It eats away at the heart and the mind and the soul and it defines who you are. But you can move forward, however painful, however regretful, however absolutely awful it has been. You can step forward and say, Father, I can't deal with this. Please take it. 
please cleanse me. Please change me. Please transform me. Give me the strength to do this because I cannot do it on my own. And let me focus on moving forward rather than being defined by the woundedness and the hurt and emotional pain I'm currently dealing with. Help me to move forward. Unilateral forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness is when you have the opportunity to sit down with the person who hurt you. Begin to explain how you feel. To seek reconciliation. For them to confess and begin to move forward together. That's never an easy conversation. But as Christian people, that's what we're called to do. We're called to move forward, to live out our faith in a credible, authentic manner. Take the humble, lowly approach. Move forward. Releasing yourself from the past. And you may be listening to me and saying, Richard, I can't believe you're saying that. Because this is what I want to do. I want to get a bullhorn and stand with that person's family and friends and tell them exactly the kind of person they are. I want to tell them exactly what they did to me. I want to tell them exactly what I think of them. And you're asking me to do this? Really? Yes. Because having been the recipient of His love and grace, having experienced that transforming power, there is time to move on. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is so compelling. That's why it's so challenging. That's why it's so energizing. And you can break free from the anxiety. You can break free from the despondency. You can break free from that sense of impotence and powerlessness in order to move on. Because when you surrender it to him and begin to focus on who you are becoming rather than where you have been, there is no telling what he can do. And finally, and I mentioned earlier that sometimes folks will say to me, Richard, just give me one thing to do this week, one challenge. Well, you asked, so here it comes. And it's a biggie. Back in March 2007, Senator Tim Scott, James Lankford, another senator, Senate chaplain, and several national leaders got together. They proposed what is called Solution Sunday. And Solution Sunday is this, that Christian people across the nation will in the weeks leading up to it, carefully, prayerfully, intentionally befriend someone of a different race and ask them to dinner on a Sunday. Let me say it again, just in case you missed it. If you're watching on live stream, this is not the time to go and put the kettle on or turn off. I need you to listen and listen carefully. Solution Sunday is a Sunday where in the weeks leading up to it, you will prayerfully, carefully, intentionally befriend someone of a different race 
and invite them to lunch in your home on a Sunday. You have nine weeks to complete the challenge. Participate in it between now and Thanksgiving. Tell someone in your small men's Bible study group, tell someone in your Sunday school class or your life group and ask them to hold you accountable. When I first heard of this, I said, sure, no problem. Then when they said, ask someone to hold you accountable, I thought, okay, I don't like that part. The other one I can agree in principle, but suddenly now it becomes real. So that's what we're asking you to do. Here's what we're not asking you to do. You don't get to invite a Scotsman and his family simply because he's from another race. Okay, so let's be clear on that. It doesn't count if you invite a Baptist, a Pentecostalist, an Episcopalian, an Anglican, or someone from another denomination. That doesn't count. Prayerfully, carefully, intentionally. And to broaden things out just a little. It may be that someone's moved into your neighborhood from Ohio, California, Chicago, New Jersey, wherever they come from. (laughs) Have them over for dinner. And can you imagine what that will mean to that family? And do you understand what you're saying to your own family, your children and your grandchildren? If we are to begin to take seriously our faith and mature and grow in our faith, if we are to take seriously the call to transform the spiritual heart of this city, it may well begin with us stepping forward, prayerfully making a difference. In a moment or two, I'm going to ask you to stand and pray. And if you are willing to intentionally, carefully, prayerfully befriend someone of a different race and have them to your home for a meal on a Sunday, I want you to stand and pray with me. If not, remain where you're seated. I promise I'll not look. But let's take seriously the call of God in our lives as individuals and as a church. Please stand and pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we take seriously your call on our lives to deal with issues that have been hurtful and painful and wounding us in the past, equip enable and strengthen us to prayerfully deal with those issues bring wholeness and healing to those of us who struggle in this area Father for those of us who take seriously the call to invite someone of a different race to our home to befriend them and care for and pray for that person enable us please over these next nine weeks to be dedicated and committed to that challenge and to allow others to hold us accountable.
Father, thank you for your love and grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.